This is Gigi Sabat, and you're listening to the Walk With Me podcast. My guest today is Tom Murphy. Welcome to the show. Gigi, thanks so much for having me. Such an honor to have you here today. Now, why don't you start off by telling us more about you and where are you from? Well, long story. Um, I'll keep it short. Born and raised in Philadelphia. It's my hometown. Um, and are you still there? Yes. I lost you just. Spotlight's on you. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a hotel room. I spend about, where am I right now? That's the question. I spend 200 days a year plus on the road. And um, so that's where I am right now. I'm in a hotel room. And that's where I spend most of my life but in the last, since 2014. But my life started in Philadelphia and um, born and raised there till I was about 10. Uh, my parents ran a mission home used to take people off the streets of Philadelphia. And um, we never had a lot of money, but we always had people with us. So I spent most of my weekends and time going to prison to visit my brothers and sisters. And uh, just I've always known people that have had challenges. And uh, got a little bit older. My parents literally opened up a real estate catalog and uh Pointed to upstate New York. My dad put myself, some puppies, my mom, and uh, we drove to upstate New York where my parents purchased a home for like $32,000 in the early 80s. And, uh, and my dad became one of these gentleman farmers, um, but he was also in the world of education. And, um, you know, I grew up in the country outside of little old Cooperstown, New York, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. And got really absorbed in the sport of wrestling. It dominated my life. Um, I thought I was going to wrestle for the rest of my life. I was a terrible student. Um, and uh, I shouldn't say that. I just, I didn't have the strategies at that time to be a good student. And uh, found myself um, approaching the end of high school. And a crazy, crazy long story on how I got into college. And, uh, but I went there to wrestle, fell in love with education, really had a few people that came into my life, mentored me the right way, taught me that I had every um, strategy that I needed to be successful in education. Um, and they were the strategies I had surrounded myself or built through the sport of wrestling. I just had to apply them. And I like to tell young people all the time that life is not a talent contest. It's a strategy game. And I was able to take a lot of those strategies from my learned from athletics and wrestling and apply them to academics and uh, got almost a perfect GPA in psychology and philosophy. And I didn't get any smarter. And um, here's a kid that had a 630 on his SATs. I'm sure, Gigi, you got that on one half of your SATs. That was my combined score. And uh, but I just fell in love with education, did real well wrestling uh, as well. And uh, wasn't finished wrestling um, in my mind. I just love um, putting my hands on people and um, just what well, I was programmed to do it, I guess. And um, but then I graduated, was on my way to uh, graduate school in Chicago and got derailed by the railroad industry, literally. And I found myself working for a summer in the railroad industry, fell in love with the industry and it took me to Northern Vermont. And as I said, I wasn't ready to stop wrestling. And so I found myself training with a team in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, just some of the greatest athletes on planet earth. And I found myself in this short little stint with um, 
the Ultimate Fighting Championship. I did a little crazy reality TV show, um, 40 Days in Las Vegas. Um, but then I found myself um, tied into some really, really good people that taught me some really, really good lessons. And when I was kind of wrapping some of that up, um, I had a lot of people that called me and said, hey, my kids saw you on TV. Could you come and talk to my volleyball team, basketball team, baseball team? And um, I was always good at taking lessons from sports, you know, from education, and most importantly, from the business world. Because in the middle that I never talk about, I found myself um, working in the railroad industry at a pretty high level um, for a national company. Uh, also, you know, owned a couple businesses myself, restaurant, gym, some other stuff. And so I was always able to take these three domains from athletics to business to education and wrap up these tiny little messages that great coaches gave me and give it to kids. And uh, so I just found myself talking to young people about leadership, motivational goal setting kind of stuff. And uh, I'm just about ready to land. You can jump in here. And um, um, a friend of mine that I wrestled with in college called me kind of in a panic and said, hey, you know, he'd seen me present to kids. And he said, hey, could you I was in charge of this anti-bullying seminar uh, for our middle school and said, could you uh, do something on bullying? The, the speaker fell through last minute. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I can. And so I put together this silly little presentation called Sweethearts and Heroes. And you had about 900 middle schoolers in that school. Another school was there, saw the presentation. They're like, wow, that was great. We've never seen anything like that. And I was just, you know, faking it. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, that was back in like 2007, 2008, something like that. And I did it at their school. And, you know, I was still working at the time in the rail industry. And, um, you know, I was presented in a bunch of schools, you know, on Fridays and used personal days and just kept building this message. And, you know, uh, over 12, 13 years later, uh, me and my speaking partner have uh, been in front of over 2 million students from Hawaii to Houston to Montreal and back. And, um, <laughs> and uh, now we travel from uh, August uh, all the way to June. We take about two weeks off and then we present all summer with educators and administrators and, and even some student stuff. And that's uh, a happy little accident, just like the great Bob Ross would say. And uh, it's really become a beautiful message uh, of hope and action. And uh, it's one that the world needs more than ever. Very powerful. Tell us a little bit more about your book. Yeah, the book is uh, uh, pretty cool. Um, you know, I started doing these seminars. Um, I guess I kick it off like this um, with the title. I like talking about the title. People see it and they say 13 pillows for affective teachers. And when you look at the jacket of the book, the word pillars is scribbled out and the word pillows is uh, in place of it. Looks like someone took a crayon and scribbled it out. And you're like, why do you do that? And I always tell educators, well, you should read it and you'll figure out why. But I'll just give you a little hint here. One of the great lessons I got from one of my, my sports psychologists, world-class guy named Brian Kane uh, from Kane Peak Performance, a personal friend of mine, but we worked together for years Years ago, he said, you got to take the pillow test as an athlete every day. And when you lay your head in the pillow at night, you're going to say one of two things. I wish I had, or I'm glad I did. 
And if you say, I wish I had, you failed the pillow test. If you say, I'm glad I did, you passed. And it's okay to fail it. I wish I had done those extra sprints today. I wish I hadn't eaten that entire cheesecake, right? You failed the pillow test, but you get to wake up the next morning. You know, you get whatever it is, 24 hours um, in the day to make sure that when you lay your head on the pillow the next night, you say, I'm glad I did. And so every one of these pillows or these lessons or these pillars, you can say that about each one of them when you apply them to your personal life or your professional life. But they're also 13 of the great characteristics that I've found that teachers, that the affective teacher has. And the word affective on the cover of the book, the E is scribbled out because a lot of the work where we do our work is in the state of New York. And in New York, um, every educator is assessed on their effectiveness. It's an assessment that every educator in the state of New York goes through called APPR. It's just every teacher in the state of New York goes, must be assessed on their effectiveness. And for me, after so many years and tens of thousands of educators, to me, that's just a bunch of hooey um, when it comes to a teacher's effectiveness. Because there's an educational philosopher years ago, a guy named Benjamin Bloom, he said there's these three domains of learning, the cognitive domain, the psychomotor that interacts with the world. But he said to connect the head to the hands, you must go through the heart or the affective domain. And the greatest educators I've ever met possess these 13 characteristics that really help teach from the heart. Now, the book is uh, a fictional allegory. Um, when we wrote the original manuscript. It was 13 different lessons based on these characteristics, um, these pillows. Um, and we were delivering them to teachers in a seminar style, but they were like standalone. And we wrote the whole manuscript and a young man that um, works with me, his name is Brian McKee and called me up and he knows I'm, I'm a kind of a C.S. Louis, Louis junkie. And I just like some of that <clears throat> G.K. Chesterton and some of that allegorical work. Because, you know, that's the essence of humanity is story. And so I'm always telling stories and have it because a kid will really listen to you if you tell them a good story. And then if you can extract the lesson out, it's like a giant head fake. You know, they think they're getting this, but they're really getting this. And so when Brian called me, he said, I got a great idea. He goes, I think we should turn that manuscript into this 13, the 13 pillows into a fictional allegory. So I start, he started to take all these great stories that I had been telling, and he traveled with me for a couple of years. So he sat in the back of auditoriums and classrooms and heard some of these great stories. And so we took a couple, you know, characters and the book, and I won't, it's a, it's a, I won't ruin anything, I promise. I just tell educators, start with the prologue. Don't read the epilogue until the end, or you've ruined something for yourself. So the book is in honor of a young man named Evan. And uh, when Evan was in the 11th grade um, in uh, central New York, he took his own life. And um, that's really a lot of the essence of our message is around the war that we're truly in, Gigi, which is against hopelessness. Uh, suicides in 10 to 14 year olds have tripled since 2007. And that's maybe the worst of the destructive decisions. And that's what a lot of our message centers around. My partner, Rick, 70% of his body was 
instantly burned away in Iraq. And it's, a, it's, it's unbelievable to think that we have 22 service members that take their own life every day in this country. And there's this eerie parallel between what's happening with our service members and our children that we're not talking about. I, I won't go down that rabbit hole right now, which is the biggest rabbit hole that we talk about. Um, but this young teacher named Bruce Breyer loses this young man to suicide. And in the prologue, he writes his resignation letter because he's the kind of guy that decided to um, get into education to turn boys into men and men into champions. Like that's why he got into it. And that's why a lot of young male phys eds and female phys ed teachers get into the sport um, of education. That's what I call it. The sport of education. It takes a lot of training. And, uh, but he gets into it for that reason, loses this young man in the book. His name is Alan and real life. His name was Evan. And I was in a wrestling room many times with Evan. I couldn't have picked the kid out of a lineup. He just one of those invisible kids that just flew under the radar until he was gone. And, uh, so our young phys ed teacher writes his resignation letter. He decides to read it out loud in the gym one more time early in the morning before he hands it in. And when he gets done out of the shadows, steps a custodian, a retired educator that loses his wife to cancer. This inner, inner city guy decides to come back um, and uh, just be around kids. And he hears this struggling young teacher reading this resignation letter. And he's got the secrets. He has all the answers. He's like the Yoda. And he steps out. And it's modeled after a really good friend of mine named Tim McGowan. And uh, if you look Tim up, Tim helped design and um, a thing called Wingman Connect for the entire U.S. Air Force. Because there's an unusually high amount of destructive decisions and suicides in young cadets in the Air Force. And, uh, but Tim, as a young man his first district as a counselor that he inherited the real Tim um, at 15 suicides in 30 months. And that doesn't even make sense to my brain. And um, 24 months later, they had one, which was too many. If Tim were, were on this call with us, he would tell you it's too many. But if you said, Tim, what's the secret to going from 15 to one, he would just tell you one word. It's conversations. Young people need to have conversations. And if they're not ready to talk about these things, they're always ready to listen. And the data is very, very clear. Talking about these things never makes it worse. It helps young people that are contemplating, that are struggling as well with all these destructive decisions. And so that's what our 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 Yoda does, he steps out of the shadows. He tries to have a conversation with this young man. And then he just takes him through these amazing 13 pillows. And, and, and every page of this book, Gigi, is a true story. I can take you to anyone and be like, oh, that happened in Seaford, Long Island. That happened in, you know, Kentucky. This happened here. Um, because we've just collected stories of some of the greatest educators that I've met in, the, in America today, in my opinion. And we say if more teachers taught from the affective domain, um, we would not have um, some of the issues we have in America. So that's the book. It's a fun book. Um, uh, it's a serious book. Um, but every educator that's read it, and I've personally taken over a thousand educators through the book myself. We do a lot of book clubs and 
it's on audible and Amazon. And so you can listen to it or read it. Um, every educator that I talk to finds themselves throughout the entire book. Like, Oh, wow. That's when I was first teaching. These were my middle years. These are my sunset years. This is where I'm at right now. And it isn't because we're smart because we're just a bunch of dumb wrestlers. Um, it's just because we've taken this from some of the greatest educators in the world. Very good. Very good. And, and so earlier you and I, we, we were chatting it up and we were talking about domestic violence. Yeah. Let's circle back to the conversation on domestic violence. What are your, what are your thoughts on the subject? Well, I appreciate this and I appreciate your vulnerability. Um, and I know you've had lots of practice at making yourself vulnerable around this topic. And I told you just in our pre-call that I spent years um, uh, working, doing some stuff through United Way for Laura's house, which is a, a uh, I don't know if it's a national shelter, but where I live in Vermont, you know, it's a secluded hidden house where survivors can get away and um, have the resources, even bring their children when they have to. And, you know, when I jump back to my childhood, um, you know, I can remember several women that came to our house that lived there that were uh, survivors. And it takes such a tremendous amount of courage to, to, I mean, they might be the greatest superheroes in the world, the courage that they possess to get out of something like that. I can't imagine it. I don't understand it. But I know it's the same war that we're in with kids. And it's a battle against hopelessness. And I can't imagine putting myself in those shoes. And um, I, I'm, I'm stalling. I'm, I'm rambling here because uh, I've been thinking a lot about it this year. I do a lot of circle work. We have this very unique circle practice. And um, it's just blown up for us. I mean, I love doing our assemblies and presentations. But the circle work that we do is just on another level. I got 13 multi-day seminars already scheduled this summer. And we can't even keep up with the requests on circle. And that's a whole great, big, long conversation around circle. But circle is, um, it's an ancient practice. It's been around for over 400,000 years. People have been sitting in a circle and having conversations. And we can engineer this circle to be a wonderful place for the growth of empathy and for many human skills that were naturally practiced you know, working on a car with your mom, baking with your dad, in the barn with grandpa. Like we just had thousands of repetitions of these hours in circle. So as part of circle, sometimes there's a lot of question asking and a lot of adults try circle and they, they say, um, I just, my questions just aren't that good. They're not like your questions. And I say, well, that's because I collect questions from students. I don't collect them from adults. Adults, they have terrible questions, especially teachers. And I always pause there. And um, I said, I know this. I took a lot of tests. They were terrible. Teachers give terrible questions. And that always makes educators laugh when you say that, especially in front of your students. But I really do collect questions from, teach, from students. And I have my, a couple of go-to questions when I meet people for the first time. Um, one of my, my hands down, my favorite question of all time came from a ninth grader. Um, and uh, this must've been about six or seven years ago. And this kid, I said, anybody else got a question? Kid raised his hand, I passed the talking piece around and he said, where would you go if you had a time machine? 
And it's a fascinating question and makes most people giggle, smile. They think about back to the future. You ask a kindergartner that they say the same thing, the dinosaurs, you know, I always want to tell the kindergartners, you know, that thing's going to eat you. Right. And you don't do that. You'll traumatize them. But, um, but really Gigi, as you get older, you think about these things and you think, um, I don't know, maybe I'd go fix a mistake that I made, you know, uh, maybe there's, there's some that I'd fixed, hurt some people's feelings pretty bad in my life and not proud of it. I've just done it. Um, most of my mistakes I wouldn't fix. That's probably a good thing to learn from those things. Um, you might go visit someone you could never see again. That might be a nice thing to do with your time machine. Um, I would say it's a funny time machine. It, you can only use it one time. You could end up back here, but you only can use it once. And, um, you know, or maybe you just go back to the greatest time of joy you ever had in your entire life with some people that just could never happen again. And so it's a really a fascinating question. And when this young man asked it, I was like, that's stupid. That's what I thought in my head. I didn't say it, but no, but he grabbed that piece and he said, I'd go visit my father in prison. And uh, I was like, whoa. And with the style circle that we were doing, you can't talk. You got to wait. And because it's about listening, it's not about talking. And um, and uh, he said, uh, when it got to me, I said, well, why would you go visit him in prison? And, I was like, and so this kid ended up saying to me, he said, he, he said, well, I'd tell him to kill himself. And I was like, oh, why? well, at that time, I didn't ask him. And because I was just caught off guard and I just started doing circle in the last couple of years in the first couple of years of doing circle. And I was like, Whoa. And there were a bunch of kids and ninth graders. And I'm like, is this an appropriate question to talk about? And I didn't understand what I was getting involved in. And now I just know how to handle everything that happens in circle almost. And so the circle was over and I'm standing by the door with this kid. And, and I kind of shouldered up next to him. I was like, dude, that was powerful. And, and he, and he kind of stood up straight and he looked me right in the eyes. I'll never forget this kid. So mature. He goes, well, Mr. Murphy, just because I don't like my dad doesn't mean I wouldn't talk to him. I said, yeah, but dude, I said, kill himself. And he just looked right at me and proud as ever. He said, well, he used to beat up my mom real bad before I was alive. And uh, like a stupid adult, I was like, that means you wouldn't be alive, man. It was before you were born. And he just looked right at me and he goes, I don't care. I'd do anything to protect my mom. And, you know, I thought about that for years and I got three girls, three women now, they're all older now. And, uh, but I got my son who's 19, his name is Thomas. And one of the coolest things I ever saw, you know, I, like GK Chesterton, I think I've learned more from kids. He said, I learned more to nursery than all my years of philosophy combined. And I feel like that today myself, that all the work I've done with kids and my own kids, that they've taught me more than I ever taught them. And the coolest thing is like, whenever I'm like, say something to my wife, who's the most important person in my life, more important than all my kids put together. Um, whenever I would say something to her and he started getting older and started feeling his oats, you know, we're just kind of fooling around. It's like, what'd you say to her? And you'd hear him run down the hall. Doo, 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 doo. It's just the coolest thing to see how a young man will protect his mother with his life. It's like, it's amazing. And over the last year, Gigi, this is a, it's a, it's a, I can't figure it out. 
I owned a business and I'm going to leave the business out of it because if anyone knows me, they might know what I'm talking about. But I had a woman who's a single mom and I love this woman. Uh, we had a horrible relationship when we first met. I wanted to fire her. I tried to. Um, and that was my fault. I didn't take the time to understand what she was going through. But last year, she got beat, beat up pretty bad by a man. I mean, real bad. And he's in prison today, which um, that's a good thing. And here's my difficulty. When does a young man, because I don't know a single young man that would not protect his mama with his life. But when does a young man go from protecting a woman to hurting one? It's a great question. I mean, I don't know a little boy that would not protect his mom with his life. He couldn't beat up a man, but he would try. What makes that switch happen? How do we fix that? How do we take these boys that'll die for their mama? You ever see a young man go and rage over his mama? Like he'll do it no matter what. It doesn't matter how big the monster is. He'll confront that monster. But at some point, something changes and they go from protecting women to hurting women. And I'm with young men every day. And some of them are going to hurt women. How do we fix that? Continue to raise awareness and, and, and educate others about domestic violence. Yeah, I don't know. That's something I've been wrestling with, especially this year, because when she got beat up, um, it just it hurt me bad. And, uh, <clears throat> and she's got two boys, young boys. So I don't know. I have a, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for the courage that you have and other women have. Um, before I sold this restaurant that I had, the last big fundraiser we did was for Laura's house. And we uh, collected lots of money for them. So I love doing stuff like that. That's incredible work that you're doing. And hence the name, Mr. Incredible. Uh, and Mr. Incredible, what is your best advice to the audience for walking with purpose and living a life of happiness? Oh, you know, I'm going to just give, you know, we were in this pre-call. I don't know why I'm going to say this again, but my buddy Rick got blown to heck in Iraq, lost his ears, lost his nose, lost his leg. Uh, hands are melted together. Um, he's my best friend um, outside of my wife. And, um, I love the guy and he's taught me so much. And years and years and years ago, he told me, he said, um, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. No, going to Disney world is the best thing that ever happened to somebody. Like not what happened to you, Rick. And, um, I didn't get it for years. I spent years with him, years with him. And, you know, I got to see it with my own two eyes the young people that he gave that he's given hope to and hope stands for hold on possibilities exist H O P E. And we have a generation of young people that don't feel like they can hold on. They don't feel like there's possibilities that exist for their future. The same thing in domestic violence. I'm sure there's a lot of young women, old women, middle-aged women that don't feel like they can hold on. They don't feel like there's possibilities that exist for their future. So they give up. And, um, 
when I when I think about Rick and what the one of the greatest lessons he's taught me, and it wasn't because of what he told me, it's what I saw with my own two eyes, that Rick has given more hope to more kids than anyone else I've ever met. And years after he told me this is the best thing that ever happened to me, one time we're talking and he said, Well, I said, Rick, I just can't figure it out. And he said to me, well, I'd have to take back all that hope I've given to other people and it wouldn't be worth it. If he got it all back, his hands, his ears, his nose, his leg, he'd have to take it all back. All that hope he's given to other people. And, you know, the scriptures are very clear, right? What is it? First Peter 3.15 or something that says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. Amen. And every single human has hope inside of them. They were born with it. Rick has this incredible story. You know, he was struggling with the same thing kids struggle with. Significance, purpose, meaning, and human acceptance. And he got the acceptance from America and adults. But little kids were terrified of him. Terrified. They would run away when they would see him. He looks like a monster. No ears, no nose. And um, he was uh, in San Antonio at a restaurant. And this little girl this grandfather knew, probably knew he was military and tried to push him over there. Go say hi to him. Go say hi to him. No. And Rick's like, oh, God, this does not end well ever. But this grandfather finally forced her over. And she comes about halfway over and he stops her and he's like, hey, how you doing? And just like she should have, she turned on a dime and ran back to her grandpa. And Rick's thinking, here we go again. And... um this little girl gets back to her grandpa and she goes, Grandpa, he's really nice. And he said at that moment, he knew he was going to be okay. Not every kid was going to accept him, but they could. That little girl had no idea she took this bucket of hope and dumped it all over him. And he had no idea that that little girl had hope inside of her. But the reality is we all have hope that we can give to other people. So I'm going to answer your question with that quote from Viktor Frankl, because, you know, I read it 10 years ago in Man's Search for Meaning. He said meaning comes in three forms. He's a two-time survivor of Auschwitz, the death camp in Poland, where at one point they were eliminating 10,000 people a day at their height at Auschwitz. This man survived that camp twice, I believe. And the third and the greatest meaning, he said, the greatest meaning in life comes from the attitude that we take towards the unavoidable suffering that we go through. That's really great. And you read that and you're like, whoa, that's amazing. But you never get to see it with your own eyes unless you've gone through it. And Rick's been through the fire. I mean, he's been through the fire. I mean, his body burnt, was burning away when he laid on the ground and looked up in the sky in Iraq, September 1st, 2006, decided to die. And for some reason, he rolled one more time, didn't know which way he was rolling, fell into a canal that he didn't know was there, and it put the flames out. And really, that's exactly what Victor Franco was talking about. And now Rick Yarish has the power to say, I wouldn't change it for anything. And now today, and I can tell you so many stories, today, he's married after his injury to a beautiful woman named Amy on the inside and outside. He's got Tenley, his 10-year-old, 11-year-old, and they fostered a little girl when she was 11 days old. 
And today she's three and her name is Grace. And her name is Grace Elizabeth Yarish. And um, I got chills, just the relationship that I've seen her build with not just Tenley and Amy, but he is in love with this little girl. But the truth is, he wouldn't have her if he didn't get blown up. It's the best thing that ever happened to him. And he wow. wouldn't change it for anything. Powerful, huh? Very so powerful. I would just tell you to answer your question. Everybody's getting blown up at some level, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's losing someone, whether it's losing the job, whether it's struggling with poverty, race, gender, whatever. You're getting blown up. But we know what the secret is. It's the hope that other people can give to them to pull them through those moments. And, um, you know, that's part of the heart of our message. And, um, yeah, that's what I would tell people when it comes to walking with purpose is, you know, it's probably the greatest meaning that you will have will be the unavoidable suffering that you go through. I love it. Thank you for sharing that with us, Tom. And thank you for being a guest on the Walk With Me podcast. Now, where can the audience find you? Yeah, I mean, just the internet, www.sweetheartsandheroes.com, Facebook, Instagram. Um, <clears throat> the Snapchat gets into some ridiculous kid stuff. So we love having fun. I'm a, I'm a play junkie when it comes to the science of play and things like that, that um, really engages young people. You just can't do boring speeches and expect young people uh, to be engaged today. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure to check out Tom on all of his social media platforms and his website is sweetheartsandheroes.com. And Tom, thank you again for being a guest on the Walk With Me podcast. Oh, you have a good day. Uh, Gigi, change that on the screen. H-E-R-O-E-S. Sorry about that. I probably okay. sent that to you the wrong way. Yes. And make sure you circle back to that, ladies and gentlemen, and make sure you check out his website, the proper website. And again, Tom, thank you for being a guest on the Walk With Me podcast. God bless. God bless you.